The reading today is from Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the, sh- the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Uh, I think it's fair to say that our society is quite comfortable with Christians doing charitable things like running op shops or uh, helping at soup kitchens, fostering community. Uh, Generally, I think those things are encouraged and and welcomed within our society. Uh, But I think most people are less keen when Christians talk about what they believe, um, and even less so if they mention things like sin and judgment. Christians really should keep those sorts of things to themselves, would be the general feeling. Uh, I think it is rare to find people who have a problem with the idea that God loves them. Most people are more than happy to talk about that and to hear about that. Uh, But people are a lot less comfortable with the idea that God might judge them. And even fewer people would want to concede that God has any right to punish anyone. Uh, The God that most people would like to think about or talk about or uh, perhaps invent for themselves... Uh, is a God that uh, does not have characteristics like anger uh, or one who might judge. 
Uh, and certainly in our society these days, where uh, the, the general feeling, the consensus is that everyone should be allowed to decide for themselves how they choose to live, uh, that right and wrong are really matters of personal preference, the whole concept of judgment uh, is a very, well, it's a bit of a dirty word, isn't it? The prevailing wisdom says, who are you to judge? But I guess it's not just a matter of who are you to judge. Uh, we go one step further, don't we? And we say, well, who is God to judge? But the fact remains, as Christians, we believe that God has set a day when he will judge this world. And by judging this world, that means each one of us will stand before him and be called to account. It's not an idea you can avoid if you read the Bible. In fact, Jesus talks about it a lot. And we're going to be talking about it today because we find it in the passage we're looking at here in Matthew chapter 3. We'll see that the king is coming and yes, he's bringing salvation, but he's also bringing judgment. And now if you were here last week, uh, you'll remember that uh, Matthew introduced us to Jesus uh, in those first couple of chapters as the king God has promised. In those first two chapters, we learn about Jesus' heritage, his pedigree. We, we looked at the genealogy there, and we saw the connections between Jesus and figures like Abraham and David. Uh, Matthew tells us about the incredible things that took place around his birth, the great predictions that were made of him, the titles that were assigned to him, even his name, Jesus, meaning that he was the promised saviour the title of Emmanuel, that he is God with us. When we come to chapter 3, we jump forward in the story some 30 years. Uh, and we've also shifted focus because we don't rejoin uh, the story with Jesus immediately. First, we meet a man named John. Uh, pick it up there, verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. John arrives on the scene like a prophet of old and he has this job to do. We're told that John is a, a voice calling in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord to come. It's actually a quote that comes from the book of Isaiah, uh, one of the prophets in the Old Testament. It's written in a context, a time when uh, God's people are in exile and Isaiah comes and speaks this word of prophecy to them a word about God coming to act, God coming to rescue, to restore his people after their years of hardship in exile. And I actually think it's kind of helpful uh, to look at that quote in its context and look at the first uh, five verses of Isaiah 40. I'm, I'll put the words up on the screen for you because this is that, where that quote comes from. And Isaiah writes, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, 
Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged plains a plain, a rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. These words are given to Isaiah around the time that Israel is in exile in Babylon. And God was announcing through Isaiah that this exile time was coming to an end. And so he comes speaking words of comfort to his people as they suffered under the oppression of foreign rulers. Now I touched on this last week, but we see it again here. The concept of the exile is a significant one when we come to Matthew's gospel. In one sense, the exile for Israel had come to an end. After 70 years in Babylon, many of the people returned back to the promised land and re-established the city of Jerusalem, rebuilt the walls. But it kind of ended a bit there. There's a sense in which the exile never really came to an end. Israel, in many ways, was still waiting for their king to come, still waiting for the fulfilment of all of these prophecies and expectations about a restoration to the days of old when they were once again God's people at peace in the land. The people were still waiting for the kinds of things that prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel had spoken about and promised. And so now John comes some 400 years later and announces that the waiting is over. Now in those days, when an important visitor would be received into your city, very often that meant doing some upgrades, doing some literal roadworks, making the road smooth and straight. Uh, and I guess we have a, a concept not dissimilar to that ourselves. Uh, my wife Catherine used to work as a geologist in civil engineering and some of her work, this is going back 20 years ago, was around road design uh, on the Pacific Highway upgrades, which 20 years later are still going, aren't they? Uh, but there are very strict rules that governed uh, how a highway was to be constructed, uh, and in particular, how level it needed to be. If there was a valley in front of you, you needed to fill that in or build a bridge. If there's a hill, well, you need to carve right through that or build yourself a tunnel, as they're about to do up at Coffs. Uh, now, in Isaiah's imagery, he picks up on this idea of a highway, um, but the highway that's being built in, on this occasion, it's not for public use, it's for the coming of God himself. It's for God's arrival. And that's how John's role is described, that he's this figure who goes out into the desert, into the wilderness, like Elijah, like the Elijah that was promised, and he tells the people to get ready for God to come. God is coming. And the way that he makes this sort of metaphorical highway for God is to get the people ready, to prepare the people for God's coming. He's there to prepare their hearts. And so John brings with him a message, a message which is both an encouragement and a warning. John's message is pretty straightforward. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The people were to prepare themselves for the arrival of their king, their Messiah, by repenting. Now, repentance is one of those kind of funny Christian words. Well, it's not exclusively a Christian word, but we certainly use it a lot more than most, don't we? And the, the idea of the, behind the word is simply to, to turn around, 
It's about a reorientation of life, to, to start heading in the opposite direction to the way that you were going. And it's associated with this idea of transformation, to renounce a former way of life and to start a new one. And as a public expression of that act of repentance, John was baptising people in the Jordan River. Um, baptisms and cleansing rituals were not uncommon in uh, Judaism at the time or in Jewish history. Uh, it was really a, a symbol of purification. And so to demonstrate their sincerity, people are coming forward to John, they're publicly confessing their sins, they're dedicating themselves to God and they're submitting themselves to this process of cleansing, this baptism ritual, because what they hope, um, what they're waiting for, is that God is about to do something extraordinary among them. But the second part of John's message uh, is also critical. He tells them that they need to repent, but the reason for that is that the kingdom is upon them. It's come near. There's an urgency to John's work, to his message. John knows that the king is coming, and he's coming soon. And if the people want to be a part of this kingdom, if they're to respond to the king that God is sending them, they need to get ready. They need to make themselves ready. Now, John's ministry is popular. He's having a big impact. Crowds are going out to him, out into the wilderness. Masses of people are repenting and being baptised by him. And all of this kerfuffle seems to have attracted the attention of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees arrived. These were part of, uh, there's a couple of sects that were within the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Um, and they go out to see what John is up to. Uh, but John seems less than impressed by their presence. See, they haven't come out to be baptised. They haven't come out to repent. They've just come out to have a bit of a sticky beak, it seems. And look at what John says to them there in verse 7. It says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptising, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John doesn't mince his words, does he? Like a firebrand preacher of old. John says that the religious leaders, well, if they want to be ready for the coming king, they need to get real. If they think that they're right because they're descendants of Abraham, well, they're sadly mistaken. John reminds them that God can raise up children of Abraham from the rocks if he so chooses. And just as Jesus is going to have to do with these guys over and over again, John is challenging Israel's most religiously respectable people, the ones who are meant to be leaders within their community, challenging them to get real about their relationship with God because they placed far too much importance on their religious heritage, on their traditions, on their own righteousness. And as we'll see throughout Matthew's Gospel, these people don't think they need to repent of anything. You know, that kind of activity that John's performing, that might be necessary for the great unwashed masses, but that's not for them. They don't really need to humble themselves before God, especially through the ministry of this wild man with his camel hair coat and his strange diet. 
See, this is the danger for the religiously respectable. They can have a misplaced confidence in their own goodness, in their own standing before God, and it blinds them to their need. I actually think this is probably the greater risk for most of us here. Now, I'm sure there are some of us who would have the opposite problem. That is to say that we, we don't feel worthy of God's love. We might think that we're, we're too rotten to be forgiven by God, that he'd want nothing to do with someone like me. Some of us struggle with those sorts of feelings. But my bet is more people who attend church are likely to struggle with their need of seeing their need for God's grace. Especially if you're the kind of person who feels like you've ticked all the right boxes when it comes to what God requires of you. You know, some people think that they're all good with God because, well, they got baptised or they got confirmed at some point in their life. Maybe it's because they went to a Christian school or they went to Sunday school as a child. Or maybe perhaps now because they're a member of the church, someone who even volunteers and serves at that church, gives money. Or maybe because they're just good and decent people. We need to be careful that we don't confuse those things with what truly matters to God. Religious devotion can lull people into thinking that, well, that's really what it's all about, that that's what pleases God. But what God wants first and foremost is people who are repentant, people who have soft hearts before him. What God is after is people who will give their whole lives over to him. Notice how John uh, kind of sticks it to the religious leaders there in verse 8 when he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. See, John's aware that genuine repentance and faith will always produce fruit. It will always be seen. You know, it's one thing to follow the crowd and wander out into the desert and hear the wild prophets speak and get baptised in a moment of spiritual fervour and excitement. But genuine repentance will be seen through a transformed life. There will be fruit. And so John calls on the people to repent, yes, but he calls upon them to live a transformed life as well. That's what true repentance actually looks like. And he tells them this with a warning. He says, because if you don't do this, it will not end well. So he reminds them there that Trees that produce no fruit are good for nothing. He warns the religious leaders in particular that these trees who don't bear any fruit get cut down and used for firewood. We'll come back to that in a minute. In verse 13, the scene shifts again as Jesus himself arrives on the scene. We're told he comes to the Jordan River and he's there to be baptised by John. John's not keen on this idea. He even tries to talk Jesus out of it. He understands that that should really be happening the other way around. But Jesus assures him there's a purpose to it all. And so John relents and he baptises Jesus. And have a look at what happens there in verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, 
This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, no doubt God says this for the benefit of the crowds who were there that day so they could appreciate who Jesus is. But I'm sure this was primarily said for the benefit of Jesus himself as he begins his public ministry. The father wants to encourage his son. He affirms that his son has his approval, his blessing, the spirit's power, and most of all, that he has his father's love. Jesus is about to begin this work, to embark on this mission that he's come to do. And right at the beginning, the father wants Jesus to be assured of his presence and his approval and his love. Pretty good father, isn't it? That's the God we know. That's the sonship that we share in. To know the father is to know that you have his approval, that you are treasured and loved by him. Here too we see the fulfilment of another prophecy from Isaiah. In Isaiah 42, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. In these events we see more clear identifications of who Jesus is, this fulfilment of things from the Old Testament. This servant that God had spoken of through the prophet Isaiah Jesus is this figure. And like we saw last week, it shows us that Jesus has come to fulfil God's plans, his purposes, these promises. He will bring salvation and he will bring justice. But there is a flavour to this passage that stands out for me. And that is this talk of judgement that we find here in this chapter. Jesus has come to bring a kingdom and with it will come salvation and hope but with it too comes this idea of judgment. Let me show you a few verses. You probably picked them up as we read through but put together you kind of see uh, what's going on here. So verse 7, you brood of vipers. This is John speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Again in verse 10, the axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And here's what John says of Jesus in verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The coming of the kingdom, the coming of this king is good news. But it also contains a very frightful warning for anyone who would ignore it. It's a message of hope for the good trees and for the the wheat, for those who will be baptised by the Holy Spirit, for those who will repent. There is salvation on offer, new life. But there is also a message of judgement for the chaff, for the fruitless tree. The arrival of Jesus means that there is a serious decision that needs to be made. A decision about him. How people respond to Jesus carries serious consequences. You can repent, acknowledge Jesus for the king that he is and live for him. 
and find life and hope in his name. Or you can reject him, ignore him, continue to live life as you please. And well, the warning here is that judgment awaits. John knew the people of his day needed to hear this message in all of its confronting fullness. And nothing about that has changed. The message about Jesus is good news, but it is confronting news. For those who will accept it, life-changing. For those who reject it, condemnation. This is how the Apostle Paul describes it in his letter, his letters to the Corinthians. In chapter 1, verse 18, in his first letter he says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. In his second letter he writes, For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. God has set a day when he will judge this world. And that judgment will hinge on our response to one person, Jesus. And so the message about him that we're called to respond to, well, to some that'll be the sweetest perfume you could ever smell. To others, a stench, an offence to the senses. Our concern should not be about whether or not this message meets with popular approval. In fact, Jesus warns us that it won't. But he also tells us there are many, many that God has called who are waiting to hear it and who will respond in repentance and faith. So let's not lose our nerve in sharing this good news with both its hopes and its warnings. Let's ask God for the courage not to shy away from these truths, but to speak that truth in love.